Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. You know we're not in the radio station at University of Toronto right now. We are remote, but uh, hopefully not too remote from you out there in listener land. So we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we have a special show today and an incredible guest for our first speaker. And this is Professor Beverly Bain. She's a black, queer, feminist, anti-racist, anti-capitalist, so important that, a scholar, and she teaches in women and gender studies at the University of Toronto in the Department of Historical Studies. She's one of the founders of No Pride in Policing and one of the organizers of the Scholars' Strike. So, Professor Bain, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Wonderful to have you on. Thank you, Sherry. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the scholar strike. Uh, it's over now um, for the time being. How did it go? How did the idea come about? Tell us about it. Well, um, uh, I, I think people uh, heard that um, following uh, the shooting and maiming of Jake Blake, um, uh, the, the WNBA and the NBA decided that they would strike for two for two days. I mean, um, uh, even. Uh, uh, some of the um, other uh, uh, sports uh, folks were thinking of not going back to not going back to to play, um, uh, but they returned to play. But in any event, the uh, um, the American universities, scholars at the, across the U.S., uh, decided that they too would launch a two-day strike, starting the first week of September. Uh, also to coincide with the fact that you know the first week of September is Labor Week right, in many parts of the world. Here in Canada, for sure, we celebrate, um, we celebrate um, uh, that week in terms of Labor Week and Labor Day. And um, uh, uh, Minsuk and I had a conversation, and Minsuk Lee, that is, and I had a conversation um, about, you know, this uh, scholar strike happening in the US um, uh, by scholars in the U.S. and we thought, you know, this is something that we should be doing here, considering uh, the escalation of police brutality here in Canada. We've witnessed, um, you know, during the pandemic, throughout the, the period of the pandemic, we've seen the shooting and killing of DeAndre Campbell. We've seen the shooting and killing of Ijaz Chowdhury. We've seen the shooting and killing um, of Chantal Moore, the indigenous woman out west, uh, um, um, and others, many others. Um, we've also seen an escalation of police um, brutality during the pandemic, the way they actually treated, you know, blacks and uh, poor people on the street, uh, how much they brutalized and, and, and um, harassed you know, the most vulnerable during the pandemic. Um, uh, and um, we also saw a, a number of protests that took place. Uh, we saw the most recent here was the, um, the death of Regis Koshinsky Pocket, um, where that, um, you know, you know, the ruling has been suspicious because when she fell off that um, balcony, there were police in in the apartment. So people are still questioning, you know, if police was in that apartment, 
How did she end up falling off the balcony from the 24th floor? What were they doing there? <laughs> you know, um, what happened? What, in, what exchange went on there? Um, anyhow, uh, th that in itself, all of that and witnessing, you know, uh, the fact that after all the work we have done here in this city over the summer, um, uh, you know, um, in uh, No Pride in Policing, staged um, a rally and a teaching uh, at the end of June, June 28th. On June 29th, the city ruled not to defund, not to demilitarize, not to de-escalate its forces, but instead voted to have body cams, which is an additional $34 million a year uh, to the police. Um, so instead of defunding, they upped their funding. We see that the, um, the province uh, has um, uh, 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 given $25 million to hire more police officers, 200, right? Um, so in spite of all of the protests and all of the, you know, calls for defunding, for demilitarizing, for abolition of police, we're seeing that the police is being um, further armed, further, de um, further militarized, further enforced, so as to continue to, um, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, um, increase its um, ongoing surveillance and policing of black, indigenous, and, you know, poor people in this city and racialized people. Speaking to Professor Bain here, um, one of the organizers of the Scholar Strike and also one of the uh, founders of No Pride in Policing. Uh, this has been an intractable problem, Professor, for so long. And you're absolutely right. Um, uh, bizarrely, in reaction, um, you know, governments in Canada have given more money. Um, <laughs> they've, they've, they've not complied in any way, shape or form, whereas south of the border, at least we can see about 19 cities have done something, even if it's not enough, they've done something. What is it in Canada that, first of all, makes us think we're better somehow than, you know, the government south of the border? And then second of all, just have this sort of incredible reaction. Um, and of course, the, the news speak, the PR doesn't say that, you know, but, um, and, and of course, SIU is still doing its thing, right? I, like, where's the log jam here? What do you think? Well, I mean, I do think that, I mean, you know, we do live in, under the context of a so-called, you know, a multicultural kind of framework here that is somehow um, created, you know, the myth that we live, you know, um, within a context that is far more humane or far more generous um, than the U.S., that we actually, uh, um, it allows this mythical belief and a certain kind of, you know, uh, amnesia about our history of violence in this country, the genocide of, you know, indigenous people, the history of slavery in this country. It, it, it creates all this sort of amnesiac, you know, sort of um, narrative um, that permeate, you know, that we open our doors to people. We're more generous with refugees and and um, and immigrants and what and so on and so on and so on. And people come to 
you know, buy into this myth that this is what the case is. Um, it is not until, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, people have been what we call, you know, doing sous-vélance, which means people have been turning their camera on to the brutality of the state, not only in the US, but here in Canada, that people are beginning to see that Canada is no, no less um, racist, no less violent. You know, um, we also have our own homegrown fascists here and right-wing, you know, um, uh, um, uh, a right wing, you know, um, uh, fascist and 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 racist and um, you know haters here in this country that has gone after, you know, if we, if we think about what happened during the pandemic, the attacks on Asians across the country, particularly out in BC, you know, as the um, vectors of the coronavirus, we've seen it here in um, you know in Toronto and other parts of the country where old um, Asians uh, are attacked by, by people just, you know, just for being Asian, just for people assuming that they are somehow responsible for the coronavirus, right? Because also, you know, Trump has been touting that it's, it's, it's from China, right? So, you know, so we have all of these kinds of narratives that have been circulating all over the place that we are all privy to, we just have to turn our television on to hear it and to see it. And we recognize that we too are, you know, no less. I mean, a lot, many of us recognize that, we, that many of us, that people here are no less uh, bigoted and that we have a history of hatred, of violence, of genocide, of slavery, of brutality. And our police forces participate. I mean, for decades, Black and Indigenous people have been killed by, by police. This is not new. What we're seeing today is not something new. This has been going on. I've been marching on the streets since the 70s against police violence. This is not new, okay? This is not new. Um, so um, let us be clear about that. But I want to um, say, so I want to say some, to, um, just kind of segue into why, um, again, these are some of the things that, you know, um, we recognize, so when, you know, when um, Min Suk Lee and I started talking about why we should do this and why this is important, we, you know, we, we, we recognize that this is who we are here too. And also as scholars, what are our responsibility? We teach in the classroom, we teach some of these things, right? We can't treat it as separate from what's happening in the real world. We can't treat what we learn in the university as separate. We live in the real world. Our lives, um, you know, we live, our, our universities are surrounded by reality, by lived people, right? We are surrounded by all, by poverty. We're surrounded. So even though we're in this, this place that seemed to be somehow protected from the outside world, we are part of that outside world. We don't stay, we have to go out there and, the, and, and come from out there, right? Our students come from outside, we come from outside in the real world. So we can't pretend we are separate. Plus there are some of us as black faculty, as black staff, as black students, as, as racialized, as indigenous. We experience that in the real world, right? Our lives are imperiled in the real world. Any of us can be stopped by police, 
Some of us have been stopped by police. Some of us, you know, have children who have been stopped by police for walking while black or driving while black. Like, listen, you know, we all have experienced some form of this kind of uh, police um, surveillance and intrusion that has made us feel unsafe, right? So we can't go back to school this year at a time when uh, the coronavirus has shifted everything that people considered familiar. We're learning online now. We're not teaching in the classroom. It's a whole new sense of, of learning. And in so doing, we're also learning on Zoom. We're learning within a context where surveillance has been heightened. We're teaching courses that can be considered in many ways um, provocative, right? And challenging to the states and the nation. Our, you know, we don't, we no longer have the privacy of the classroom nor the intimacy of the classroom. What we have is these, uh, is, the, is, the, is the technology which is, which is connected internationally, also connected through all kinds of regulatory and criminalized networks, right? and monitored by particular people who can decide what we say. Speaking uh, here on the Radical Reverend Show with Professor Bain, um, a teacher, scholar, organizer of No Pride in Policing and the Scholar's Strike. Um, and we're just talking about the Scholar's Strike. I wanna uh, go back to the policing piece too, because you are one of the founders of No Pride in Policing, which takes Black Lives Matter's demands and extends them um, for things like defunding the RCMP, special constables, ending anti-trans violence and the two-gender binary. So Professor Bain, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I had Sandy Hudson on the show a couple of weeks back, and she said, you know, when she's interviewed on mainstream media, anybody talks about defunding the police by 50% or more or abolishing the police, Mainstream media always wants to say, uh, ask her questions about that. And she said, really what they're asking is, are we being reasonable? Am I reasonable? Is this crazy? Are you crazy is the question. Yeah. Which really we speaks to white fragility uh, around this issue. So let's talk about policing and why that's important and such a core demand. Yeah, well, I mean, this is it. I mean, the, uh, we have... Um, you know, we have created a society where we believe that we cannot, that there, we, can, we cannot reimagine a society without policing. Um, because, you know, um, we, have, uh, we have grown into a system which is very much, you know, which, which needs, you know, a militarized force and a policing force to manage, to um, surveil, to uh, police a particular population, and for that, and 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 that population happened to be a population that is considered a population that will um, be, you know, somehow rise up and deprive or take away, you know, um, that which is material from the rich, the wealthy, right? So policing really is not about protecting people, but protecting property, capital of a particular group of people and the state. Yes. So, um, so we have seen 
that people, it, there's also a narrative that comes with it that says that all of us, and in order for them to be able to protect people and to protect the state and to protect, um, you know, uh, property, they also have to dispossess people. So they continue to invest um, in wealth and, and, and property while dispossessing people of services, of employment, of health, of things that are necessary for certain people to live, like you know, black racialized and 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 people who be who are made poor in this society. So all of that is carefully constructed within capitalism and racial capitalism. So we see that we what is happening is that they the state requires a much larger and uh, uh, buildup of militarization and uh, uh, and and es escalation of weapons and more police as they dispossess this is us of you know of, of everyday living um, necessities because they are concerned about people coming after them. Why are they so concerned when there is a protest? Uh, why do why does it become always about you know? Oh, they're destroying property. Why is that the issue? Why is it not the issue that if people are allowed to have jobs, if they're allowed to be fed well, if they're allowed to have homes where they can live and they can look after their children, if they're allowed to have an education, maybe this would not happen. But this is happening because this is a direct um, uh, 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 result of the fact that yes, you continue to dispossess us and then you continue to kill us when we stand when we you know um uh call you out or when we are walking the street or when we you know um when we you see us in places where you think we shouldn't be or you police our communities because you think you want to make sure that we stay in those communities and whatever we do remains in that communities and doesn't enter any other communities that are considered respectable and wealthy, right? Absolutely. Um, speaking again, uh, just if you're tuning in uh, to Professor Bain um, uh, about the scholar strike and uh, of course, no pride in policing, these two great initiatives. I was at the demo in um, June and, uh, and, and really impressed with many of the speakers there as were others, of course, outside the police uh, building. I just want to segue in because there's been chatter on the left um, in, in socialist circles around identity politics and an anti-capitalist movement. But how could we bring all of this together to be this mobilized force that's going to take down capitalism? And I wanted you to talk about the anti-racist struggle, maybe in light of, of uh, comments from that I've heard from, not all, but some, on the left, on the socialist left, about you know we should all be coming together. Um, you know this is one struggle among many. Um, can you speak about that? Well, I, I mean, you know, this is um, when we talk about identity politics, I'm kind of getting the sense that what is actually being critiqued here as identity politics is the actual struggle that's actually happening in terms of you know that the fact that right now you know, um, anti-Black racism is actually 
prominent in the um, in the context right now, and um, that somehow you know um, we are emphasizing anti-black racism and anti-black racism protests and struggles um, more than we are you know uh, engaging. Um, class or more than we are engaging other issues. And I think this is where, when I'm, ta I'm talking here about the left or the socialist left, when they're talking about identity politics, I think this is what they're talking about. And I'm kind of thinking like, like you know, I mean, haven't we learned anything? Look, what's happening in the world right now? Who are the people that are being under siege? How could this be about identity politics when black people's lives are under siege? Right? What it, to come together means you first have to acknowledge that this is the fight and that black lives, and as we fight, you know, as anti racist um, and anti capitalist, we are fighting on the basis of it's intersectional, right? We're fighting on the basis of race and class, right? And um, I, I, I hear this argument and it seemed to imply that somehow black, blackness is being um, somehow, you know, um, preferred here. But the reality of the matter is, is that black and indigenous people are dying. So I'm not sure how you're gonna say that this is not a critical issue and how that can be buried or that somehow can be eclipsed for something, you know, um, and that somehow, um, it should be, you know, submerged into a larger debate of class. It can't. This is the old politic. I used to be a communist. We we did that politic already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was I was a Trotskyist, and I remember right? where you know yeah. we're, we're of a certain age. <laughs> we were there, and we done that, and, and and we still have socialist groups who are still using that line. And I'm thinking, like, you know, get a get a grip, people. Okay. Um, so, um, I, I absolutely, you know, um, you know, I think, um, I think for those groups, if they want all of us to come together, they got to be part and parcel of the current political context. And it also has to be one about reimagining, right? I mean, we have to talk about reimagining a world where we can all live, but in order for that to happen, we have to also acknowledge that what's at stake right now in order for us to move on? And how then do we start to, um, you know, um, rip this step apart? Who is, who, I mean, who is um, Trump coming after? Who is Trump going after? He's going after, you know, black and, and poor people in the US, black and Latinos. I mean, his agenda is a racist and fascist agenda. So you cannot, and who are his targets? They're black people in the US who are dying of coronavirus more than anybody else in the US and in Canada statistics show it's black people. What does that tell us about who are the people who are you know, the targets in our society? So to talk about a, an identity politics, I don't understand this. Makes no sense to me under this context. So I think we have to be careful because in my opinion, I will call that a really reactionary an, um kind of position to take at this point. Absolutely, I agree. I just wanted to raise it because it has been raised. And talking about intersectionality, one of the things that's really come out 
uh, in the uprising is anti-Black trans racism, which has been so revelatory to hear. And queers being involved in this, hence no pride in policing and and that whole struggle. Um, So we've only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, Professor Bain, can you say something about the queer um, aspect of of anti-Black racism as it's being lived out on our streets right now? Well, I mean, we only had to, you know, we only had to go back. We only had to go um, look at what happened with Pride, okay, a few years ago um, when um, uh, Black Lives Matter halted the parade. Uh, Immediately, now Black Lives Matter is actually here in Toronto and in the U.S. are led by Black queer and trans folks. Yes. Okay. Like, let's be friggin' clear. They are, the ones, <laughs> they, are, they are the ones who are who run who are the head of Black Lives Matter. Yet, um, we had uh, um, a lot of white queers and trans um, uh, screaming and yelling, like, "Who who the hell is Black Lives Matter to come and stop our parade?" They were an invited guest. They had no right to come and stop the parade. I'm thinking, oh, so they're not queers and they're not trans. They're black. And we see how, how it plays out is that our queerness and our transness immediately dissolves and is immediately dissolved and is immediately cut off from our blackness whenever we pose a challenge with inside the queer movement. Yeah, and, and Professor Bain, you know, since I was there when that happened, and um, I mean, it, it was so ludicrous. I mean, as if the Pride Parade runs on time. <laughs> I mean, like, as if it has ever, and even the Dyke March, like, I was there for the Dyke March, and, it, you know, like, really, like, it's, it's so stop the parade for a while to demand the police aren't there, and um, and, and, and the backlash uh, was just ridiculous um, to that. It whole, was, and I mean, but yeah. it also shows it also shows, you know, the racism and the anti, the anti-black, um, anti-black um, queer and trans um, uh, 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 sentiment uh, that we, that exists within the queer and trans movement, the larger queer and trans movement here in Canada, which has also been, which is why MPPC got started in the first place. <laughs> which, which, thank you for that. Um, I'm afraid we're out of time and okay. I, I want to speak for like a day, but we can't. Um, so you've been listening to Professor Bain here on the Radical Reverend Show. We'll be back in, in a moment to talk about something that happened last week as well. And that is uh, faith leaders standing with the Roehampton Hotel residents against uh, the reaction there in Midtown. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be talking about that in just one minute. Thank you so much, Professor Bain, for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. You just heard Professor Beverly Bain, of course, speaking about the scholars strike. But something else happened in Toronto this last week as well. On Sunday, uh, there was a demonstration, a coming together of faith leaders uh, to stand with the residents of a hotel in Toronto that has now been uh, turned over to those who otherwise would be homeless. And we're going to talk about that, the issue of homelessness and why faith leaders are getting involved in the first place. 
Um, and of course, to do that, we've got some amazing folk. Uh, we have two of them have been on the Radical Reverend show before. We have, uh, first of all, Kevin Robertson. He's the Bishop of York Scarborough, the Anglican Diocese of Toronto. He oversees 58 parishes and is passionate about the gospel call for social justice. Uh, in his ministry, he's committed to ensuring equity and dignity for the marginalized. Kevin and his husband live in the East End of Toronto with their eight-year-old twins and a new puppy, Nina. <laughs> we also have Rafi Aaron. Uh, Rafi's volunteered at the Beth Shalom Besedic out of the Cole Shelter for 13 years, and he's been chair of that endeavor for six. He's a spokesperson for the Interfaith Coalition to Fight Homelessness and on the steering committee of Shelter Housing Justice Network. Rafi, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Great to be here. And finally, no stranger to the show, Alexa Gilmore. She is the minister at Windermere United. She is founder of the Stone Soup Network, a member of Faith in the City, and uh, of course, equity and justice has always been part of her advocacy. She works in interfaith and secular areas in the service of refugees, low-income neighbors, and the LGBTQ2S community. Welcome back, Alexa. It's good to be here. Thanks, Sherry. So Rafi, perhaps you could start with just uh, sort of setting the, the, the stage for us. So what is the Roehampton Hotel? How did this effort come about? Um, the Roehampton is a what I would call a hotel shelter now. It has been turned over uh, or leased by the uh, shelter um, SSHA, which is in charge at the city of the uh, shelters. And they have made it uh, into basically a shelter or an accommodation, um, you know, for those in need uh, of housing at this time. And there are a number of shelters in the city. Why this one? Why the effort to stand with the residents of this one, Rafi? I think, um, you know, uh, as faith groups, we've stood with uh, those in need of housing throughout the city, you know, whenever there was a need. And we've been there, whether it was for food security, shelter, you know, whatever the issue was. Uh, In this particular case, um, there were three shelters that were opened up, hotel shelters that were opened up in Midtown um, during COVID-19 over the last few months. And there has been opposition from some of the neighbors. And, uh, you know, we were very concerned about that. And uh, we were just concerned, actually, for the safety uh, of those people who were uh, living uh, at the uh, hotel shelter. This effort has gained a lot of press um, around it. Is that because this is is new to Midtown Toronto? I, I I think there's a couple of reasons. I think the first thing is it is very new to Midtown Toronto. And, um, you know, I think that they were sort of separated from what was going down, uh, you know, what was happening in other parts of the city where shelters were being opened on a fairly regular basis, where there was, uh, you know, uh, you know, neighborhoods had embraced uh, people uh, in need of housing, and this was something new. It also happened that there was three all at once uh, due to COVID nineteen and and the need, you know, to have social distancing. So I think these two components, uh, you know, 
came about. And then I think there's a third one where there was just opposition to having a shelter there and not and people not really having enough information uh, about it. And it appeared that there was a small group that were, you know, radically opposed to the shelter who were really sort of, uh, there was a lot of misinformation to people who had genuine concerns. So I think really that was, you know, the background. I should say that uh, both uh, Josh Matlow, who's the city councillor, and Jill Andrews, who's the MPP for the area, have shown um, uh, extraordinary support for, for the Roehampton residents. Um, so I don't want to like exclude our political representatives here. Alexa, I want to get, come to you because um, I want to talk about the faith aspect of this. Why a faith response at all to this? I'd be happy to to speak a little to that, but I want to also speak just briefly to the personal. I'm coming to this particular conversation very tender-hearted because as soon as we're done talking, I will be writing funeral liturgy for a congregant who was living in the shelters, and um, the combination of of uh, housing being years away, uh, jobs being impossible to find during COVID and a sense of hopelessness in the face of what I think he saw as apathy on our part um, as a society um, really drove him uh, to, uh, to embrace uh, an end to his suffering that, um, that was really quite lonely. And so this for me is, is such a difficult uh, time uh, but such an important time to be talking about these kinds of uh, of, of concerns. From a faith-based perspective, it's part of our faith. It's all of our faith, um, really. When you talk about the the Christian tradition um, to to care for the most marginalized, to walk with as opposed to stand against those who uh, are needing support and care, and so it. It felt like at a time where people had really had had concerns that were were valid, that the faith leaders could come in and remind us of our shared humanity and that the way through this to safe streets for all is to uh, to be uh, be human together, to walk this journey together um, and to let the fear subside and um, our empathy to increase. Kevin, let's get you in on this conversation. Uh, and again, if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. And we're talking here about uh, a shelter that's opened in Midtown Roehampton Hotel. It's one, of course, of many shelters in the city. Um, but this has been met with some opposition, which was concerning. And so various faith leaders got together and responded uh, on behalf of the residents. And Kevin, you were one of them. Uh, so why? what brought you there on Sunday? Well, a few things. Um, first of all, I want to I want to echo what the other two speakers have said about the importance of of this issue for us, not only as a society but as faith communities. I think it really runs to the core of of who we are as as a Christian community. And I I love the fact that we are able to stand shoulder to shoulder with our siblings in the Jewish tradition, and I think in, in other faiths as well. This reminds me of the importance of our humanity and regardless of our own particular religious views, 
and identities, there's a commonality in our striving. Um, Alex, I loved your language of, of standing with and for rather than standing against. So that's that's one of the things that that brought me out on Sunday afternoon, Sherry. I think one of the other things is that I I know that I know Midtown Toronto. I was the rector of Christ Church Deer Park at Young and St. Clair for a number of years before I became a bishop. And I know the passion that people in Midtown have for um for the poor and the marginalized. We often think, I think, that those who live in more affluent communities across the city are indifferent. And I and I don't think that's I don't think that's fair. I I, I saw uh, people in the, through the churches on the hill food bank through the out of the cold program at Yorkminster Park, uh, the Saturday morning breakfast program at Christchurch Deer Park in partnership with Calvin Presbyterian. There was all kinds of really interesting stuff happening, and people were passionate. What I think is different this time around is people living in the community, and for some. I, I think that's that that has been the line that's been crossed, and I'm 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 sorry about that because I we I mean, we have a we have a an absolute obligation not only as people of faith but as citizens of this great city to to be welcoming one another into our midst, and it's not always going to be easy. And I've heard the concerns that you know there's a high school not far away from the Roehampton, and you know I, I I've heard the rumors that there have been needles in the parking lot. Yeah, and that's th- th- those are those are fair concerns and considerations, but this is not a binary issue. It's not it doesn't have to be one or the other. This is about making room for each other and when we when, when there are bumps along the way to take the time to sort them out um, in a constructive way rather than saying um, either the Roehampton is is a place where uh, people who are homeless or marginally housed can be welcome or drive them out of the neighborhood. I, I, I can't imagine that it's one or the other. So one of the reasons I was there on Sunday afternoon was to be a voice of, of, of uh, moderation of, uh, with, with the rest of you as faith leaders to say there is a way forward. Uh, Rafi, I'm going to come back to you because you, you set the stage for us, but I want to talk about your faith perspective. Uh, you come from the Jewish tra- tradition. And by the way, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking here with Kevin Robertson. He's Bishop uh, of York Scarborough in the Anglican Diocese of Toronto. We're speaking to a uh, minister, Reverend Alexa Gilmore, uh, who's minister at Windermere Church, a United Church. And we're speaking to Rafi Aaron, who's been part of Shalom Bessetics uh, Out of the Cold Initiative and many others. So Aaron, talk talk to us about um, your background in faith. What brought you to this? I think it's the same thing that brings all of the faiths together. It's that, uh, particularly when we're talking about the Interfaith Coalition to Fight Homelessness, it is what I like to refer to as that sweet spot in, in, in all traditions uh, in all scriptures, the talk of love, compassion, you know, and helping those in need uh, and, you know, how we treat our neighbor. So it may be different languages. It may be different holy books, but the uh, the importance and significance um, of, of those things are prevalent throughout our faiths and uh, particularly standing up for those in need at critical moments. So I think that's really just not from the Jewish tradition, but from everybody that I've stood with. We're talking, of course, about uh, an event that was held 
in a park um, not far from the Roehampton Hotel where the residents have taken up residency. And of course, uh, three of the leaders, Alexa and Kevin and Rafi. Alexa, I want to talk to you a little bit about the theology behind this. Because we know, I mean, certainly this is out there and we've probably all heard it. Um, and even when it's not spoken, it kind of is an undercurrent uh, issue that, you know, somehow people that are on the street somehow ended up there because of something they'd done. You know, it was an addiction issue or it was they didn't want to work or they didn't want to take a job or that somehow, and we know this comes from very conservative ideology, but somehow they, they deserve it. And in the same on the other side of the coin that those who live in nice houses worked hard to get them. Um, that kind of weird work ethic. What do you say to that? Wow, there's a lot to be said to that. Um, from the theological perspective, of course, in in the Christian tradition, we have a scripture that where where someone says, "Who sins?" and Jesus Jesus points out that it isn't an individual sin, but it's an opportunity for God's divinity to be shown through into that situation, um, not be because of the the situation. But uh, there's also, I think, a really important piece that you touched on, and that is that the research shows from the likes of Gaber Mate and others that most um, addiction issues, in fact, 100% of his clients that he saw for addiction were the victims of abuse in childhood. And so we're taking a population that is already the most traumatized in our country and re-traumatizing them. And the scriptures are clear on that. The prophetic traditions um, speak of how we sell the, the vulnerable and the innocent for a pair of silver, how we trample on the heads of the poor and deny justice to them. Uh, and then they're equally clear that what, uh, what our God calls us to is mercy, right? To love our neighbor as ourselves um, and to ask the question of, when I needed shelter, did you house me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was sick with an addiction, did you heal me or did you shun me from your sight? And that's what we're speaking to with this, with the Roehampton Hotel situation is um, it's convenient and a lot more comfortable not to see um, human devastation and suffering. But we aren't called to that. We're called to be open hearted and have our hearts cracked open just enough that we can welcome in um, the suffering in ourselves and in one another. Kevin, I'm going to come back to you because certainly we see in our pews and we see outside of our pews, I can just hear the question welling up after, thank you, Alexa, for that beautiful survey, but the God of judgment, the God of personal responsibility. What do you do when you hear this? Well, I mean, I, I think the God of judgment and the God of personal responsibility is one way of looking at the scriptures. And unfortunately, I think it's been a prevailing view for those who have been prosperous. I think it's, you know, for the people who are privileged and prosperous, it's great to talk about, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, because that's what God wants you to do. I, I think the, the understanding and a, and a faith in God from a different perspective looks very different. I think, um, to come back to Alexa's comment about mercy, I mean, I, we, we, uh, we as, as, a, as a Christian church generally, I mean, I, I'm an Anglican, but I, I think I can say this on behalf of mainstream Christianity and beyond, that I think we've, we've spent uh, too much time on the God of judgment and not enough time on the God of mercy. And the, the, the beauty of, 
again, I, I obviously can't speak, Rafi, for the, the Jewish faith, but I, I think from a Judeo-Christian perspective, the, the, the beauty of, and the sacredness of our scriptures shines through in, in a God who is one of love and mercy. And, and, and the, the primary calling, I think, on our lives is to be people who, who embrace and who embody those very same qualities. And we forget that sometimes. And that I think, especially in, in Toronto, when, and, and, and I, I, I love Toronto. It's my home. I don't want to vilify Torontonians in any way. But the pace with which we live and the system that we're all a part of, often subconsciously, um, drives us in a particular direction. And I think it's incumbent upon, upon faith leaders to step back and, and remind people that there's a different way of seeing the world. Uh, just, I, I just want to push you on one issue, um, and that is, you know, if people turn on their television sets and they may see somebody standing there with a Bible in one hand uh, talking about what's commonly called the prosperity gospel. You know, just believe and focus and come to church and the world will be yours. And of course, the inference being it's a lack of faith, right? So there is that strand of Christianity. And a lot of people out there that are listening to this, this show that aren't Christian, aren't Jewish, or you know, aren't Muslim, are not people of the book in any way, shape, or form, and don't follow particularly a spiritual tradition, um, will say, well, isn't that Christian? So what do you say to that, Bishop? Well, I, I would say, how's that working for you? Right? I mean, for for 99% of, of, of Christians anyway, and including those who, who may have a soft spot for the prosperity gospel. And I think the prosperity gospel works very well for, um, uh, for, for some preachers. Um, and, and I d- dare say there's something rather self-serving about it. But I, first of all, I'm not sure that that is actually the reality for many followers of Jesus. But more importantly, I don't think it's the goal. Uh, I I want to I want to commend Alexa for her her theological reflection on some of those wonderful scriptural texts. That, that I don't I don't actually think that that is the Christian life. If I if I dare say, may I add, Sherry, that there is a there is a God of judgment, but we f- fail sometimes to. Um, to see it in its entirety in terms of we look at the personal uh, judgment. So we easily point the finger at the addict, the homeless, the poor, and we fail to see our systemic failures. And if one thing that this pandemic has done for us is sort of ripped away uh, from our eyes the blinder to uh, 30 years of a housing crisis here in the city and the need for emergency shelters has given us this opportunity to, um, to, to turn to the question of where is the judgment on this society that would let so many people fall through um, the system? And where are we called um, to, to look into our own failures, uh, collective failure, uh, and respond with compassion? and change our ways as a society. Uh, Rafi, I'm going to go to you. In our in our Christian Common Lectionary that I, I think most of us are using, um, we, we dealt with the Passover uh, passage in Exodus uh, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, it, and it really is striking. I mean, striking in part because of its violence, but it's also talking about the God of judgment to Alexa's point. What you have to kind of tease out of that, of course, is the years and years of violence inflicted upon the Israelis in that story of the years and years of violence and slavery and, uh, you know, oppression to Alexa's point. But I wanted to let uh, have you weigh in on this. Uh, the, we were talking about, you know, but what about the God of judgment, Rafi? I think that 
the God of judgment, uh, and it, it is often used, you know, from a point of prosperity. Um, but I think that everyone if needs to be using that God of judgment, but on themselves and not on others. It should be a mm -hmm. mirror. And if we are housed, um, then we need to say, what are we doing for those that are unhoused? If we have food on our table, then we need to be looking into that mirror or looking into our food saying, what are we doing to make sure that others eat? Um, I think that that's where the judgment needs to come in. We need to be judging ourselves harsher than we are judging others. And we should not be judging those who are marginalized or struggling in any form or capacity. There were a few things I wanted to add just about the shelter hotel that have been stated. First of all, uh, everyone seems to be painted with one brush, which is disturbing. So we're hearing that everybody um, is an addict or has a mental health issue, which is really only about 20% of the people there. They need housing. And um, so this is the number one issue is housing. But those who don't have the information, and there seems to be just, again, a small group that is doing a fair amount of fear-mongering. And that's why I think it, it was very important for faith leaders and others to step forward and say, just hold on a moment. Um, the other thing that everybody has to understand uh, also when they're judging everybody else is that in the 13 years that I've been dealing with people who have been need, in need of housing, um, I have seen people from every walk of life, from all circumstances. And I fully appreciate that any one of us could be homeless for any number of circumstances. So there was a professor, there was someone who was a professor um, who was, you know, who, who was using our out of the cold. Um, there was an individual who uh, came, who had a, a house, two cars, a good job. He developed an illness that was not covered. Uh, his medications weren't covered by OHIP. He lost everything. Um, so these are things that can happen, family breakdowns, uh, loss of jobs, and particularly at this moment in time that we are going into such uncertainty with the economy and that, and we, they're preparing to be anywhere from six to 13,000 evictions in Toronto. I mean, this is a really a time not for the God of judgment, but for the God of mercy and for everyone to step forward in the name of compassion, but also to realize that as secure as we may feel, um, that the ground underneath us right now is not secure. And that, you know, we have seen, again, people right across the spectrum in need of housing. Thank you so much, Rafi. And thank you to all of you. Um, we've been speaking to Kevin Robertson, Alexa Gilmore, and Rafi Aaron. And of course, I guess the message really is um, be compassionate and recognize that that we live in a national disaster of homelessness in the city and that whatever we can do, wherever we can do it, whatever we should do, we should be doing it. Uh, thanks for listening to the Radical Reverend Show and thank you all for being a part of it. Mm -hmm.